All right, you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. And today we are talking about gathering inspiration for your designs. And I think all of us probably have have a little bit of a voice in the back of our head that says, don't steal somebody else's work. But by the same token, you have to somehow gather inspiration for what you're about to do and with the hopes that maybe you change it enough, you personalize it enough that it becomes yours. The question I would have for you, Brian, to kick this off is what what's the first step that you take when you're starting a new project and gathering inspiration? What what, what is it that you do to start that process? Uh, well, it kind of all depends on the client and the, the project. There's a lot of different things that go, go into creating a design. And one thing I think a lot of people worry about is what you mentioned, ripping people off. And I think that is something that if you are deliberate in your intention on trying to iterate on someone else's design, that it's not really ripping off. It's more inspired by. To kind of tell you a story of how I, how I look at this, um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and my main focus was to be a music teacher. And then that way I'd have my health insurance and 401k all covered. And then I'd be able to spend the summer playing my saxophone, traveling the United States, uh, you know, being a gig, gig working musician during the summer and still, still have health insurance and all that. So I, to, uh, to facilitate that, I took lessons from a uh, local saxophone player. You may have heard of his band that he helped found the cherry pop and daddies. Oh yeah. They were a ska band. Uh, they had a top forties song. I think it was called Zoot Suit Riot. Yep. Yeah. I think that was uh, in the late nineties, somewhere around there. But uh, one thing that he taught me was to keep a list of musicians you want to jam with, because when you're in a jazz situation, you're jamming with other guys, there'd be kind of like a call. <clears throat> it'd be kind of like a call and response yep. situation where you'd play off of each other's lick so one guy would play a little something and then you would you would build on top of what he played off of and so you would start to be able to use what they played to build your own style of improv or they might use what you played to build their own style of improv so it's kind of like the sharing of ideas playing back and forth playing off of each other's uh, licks and you just kind of develop your own style from that process so he kept a list about all the musicians that he respected and uh, thought we're doing really amazing work. And whenever he could figure out a way to set himself or be in a position where he could be like, hey, I would love to jam with you, um, he would help take that opportunity to do that. So I think as furniture designers, I have tried to do some of that myself um, and set my life up to be able to meet other people and other uh, designers and other furniture makers that I respect. So like uh, if we take uh, Daryl Peart, for example, he is a really great uh, green and green inspired builder. He builds a lot of green and green furniture. And uh, I, I love the green and green style, but I always kind of wanted to make it my own. But setting up my life to be able to interact with him. Uh, so basically through the Wood Whisperer Guild, uh, he teaches a course on green and green furniture there. And so I was able to work with him to draw the plans. So that really kind of helped me develop my own green and green style. That's fascinating in terms of making that connection, both on, on the music side of things, but then on the furniture side of things. I mean, one of my good buddies, Tom Mills, uh, he has a, a YouTube channel called green shorts and um, he has, I think 
green short he has several channels but he has green shorts and then green shorts diy and on the diy channel he he referred to one of the projects that he did as jazz carpentry and i had never heard those two words put together before but it was it was looking at number one the materials that he had to work with which were all salvaged uh materials repurposed materials and understanding that not everything had to match perfectly that it, it could be a little bit more loose and it could be um something that that was more inspirational than it was professional and by the same token taking cues from other projects and other buildings other things of that nature so that you did put together this very improvisational carpentry which is a really weird way you know in the carpentry world we think of things in measured plans and and very accurate things that fit really well and he kind of turned that idea on its head for me but from again, we're we're talking about gathering inspiration from from being able to take little things from here and little things from there, and by the time you mix them all together, it's something completely different. And it's interesting, Brian, that you mentioned the jazz piece. I had in my notes, you know, for everybody out there, we we do make some notes before we record these things. Just just things that you want to make sure that you mention. One of my notes is uh, I I talk to our architectural staff all the time about architecture being just like blues music and that same thing you sit around with a bunch of guitar players and somebody plays a little bit of a lick right there might be some rhythm to it or or there might be a melody line to it and then the next person takes that lick and adds a little bit to it and by the time that song gets back around the circle it still has some of the dna that it started with but it's definitely an offspring and it's something completely different and completely new and the cool thing is is it's usually something better than where it started because everybody's added a little bit of their own flavor. And now all of a sudden this jam has some legs to it. It has some width to it. It has places for different people to improvise within it. And there's a lot of power back to, back to what we, we started talking about there. There's a lot of power in building on ideas rather than saying, I have to come up with something so fresh and innovative that nobody's seen anything like it ever before. I think there's a lot more power in saying, well, let's take layer one, then add layer two, add layer three, add layer four. That makes a very, very interesting and complex final result. And I, I find it interesting that you also use the music uh, analogy for uh, for people listening, how we record this podcast. We generally come up with the topic the day we record. And then we take a few minutes to write our notes about what we're going to talk about, but we never share our notes with each other. Yeah. So sometimes uh, I will have a couple of notes of points that I want to hit on, but the conversation will go off in another direction. So I think it's also important when you're designing things, if someone uh, pitches you an idea and it doesn't fit with your idea that you you can't be married to that idea and try to force it into the build if their idea is better. So same kind of same kind of thing of how we record the the podcast we want we want it to kind of grow organically and not not just be trying to constantly force our our individual ideas in there so that way the podcast kind of goes off on its own uh and kind of becomes its own thing and that's kind of the great thing about design when you're working with other people is that it just kind of goes off on its own thing that it may not have started out where you thought it was going to go i think I, I would wholeheartedly agree, Brian. And I know I've mentioned one of my biggest influences in in my design career was Dan Rockhill, a professor back at KU. 
I took a furniture building class with Dan and at the start of the class, you know, everybody starts off with a blank page, right? And when you're young and you're in design school, you get a little bit of that empty page syndrome, right? And I came into him with, you know, some sketches of some crazy things that I thought I was going to build. And, and Dan, you know, sort of grabbed me by the shoulders and said, this is too much. You're never going to get done. You're biting off more than you could chew. And of course I was like, oh no, it was, you know, I, I remember one of my designs was this kind of weird sinuous shape with a, with a shock absorber on the back of it. And it was, you know, going to have all these moving parts and everything else. And he's like, you don't have any idea what this is going to actually take you to complete and you only have a couple months and you have other class, you know, coursework stuff to attend to. And so he just grabbed a magazine off the shelf. It was a Metropolis magazine. I can still remember because it's it really uh, large. It was like a tabloid format magazine. It was really unique. And he goes, I want you to flip through here and find a really nice looking piece of furniture, something that's, you know, really well done, refined. And, you know, so we flipped through and I was like, oh, this one's pretty cool. And he goes, build that, build that exact piece of furniture. And I was like, well, this is design school. I don't just want to copy somebody's project. And he said, I guarantee when you get done building this piece of furniture, it will not be a copy of this thing. You're going to try because you're not even going to get close, but you're going to change things as you start to build this. And it's going to become something that's yours. And of course, you know, this was a class that was about welding and doing woodwork and, and doing some of the other things that I still do to this day. And he understood the technical challenges that I was going to face that I had no idea were ahead of me. I thought, you know, I was, I was a big shot. I already knew how to weld. I already knew how to do this stuff, but I couldn't do it in a, in a refined manner. But it was, it was a really interesting thing that if you, and I think this is good for our listeners, there are some people who are listening who may never design something from scratch in their entire woodworking or metalworking careers, they will build things off of patterns and off of plans that other people have made. But the reality is even in using those patterns or those prints, there are opportunities for you to affect the design in small ways. Uh, I'll say, for instance, the choice of fastener, how the fasteners are either above or countersunk or below the surface of the work. Those details completely change the way that a piece finishes out and what it looks like and how refined it is. And just that one small choice of fastener can take a project from being someone else's to being yours. And I, I think a lot of people out there don't understand that the power in those small details and that you can, you can start a design project by copying somebody else's idea. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. To go back to that uh, magazine idea where he gave you the magazine and told you you won't be able to build that exact piece the way it is uh in the woodworking world we kind of all follow each other so i'll see something that someone built and i'll know that they tried to copy another builder because i know whose piece that is but you look at it and it's not the same piece uh for various reasons uh when they're trying to copy it off a picture they don't know how severe that curve is in real life. They're just approximating it. Uh, they don't know exactly how big it is other than just the overall size. So all those little things start to uh, morph this thing and change the proportions into something that's slightly different. And if they're a little more deliberate about those changes and experimented, okay, with that curve a little bit more, should I curve it more? Should I curve it less? Is that going to make it my own design? Um, so yeah, all those things totally affect uh, the end result. And then grain direction, 
uh, grain direction is huge. Yeah. There's so many times where I've designed something and I do sell plans to that thing. And I spent a ton of time looking and analyzing the grain and finding a grain that curves with the curve of the piece, uh, a figured piece of grain for an accent panel. And then when I'm done, I'm thinking, yeah, this looks really good. And then someone will send me a picture of the plants that they bought and they built it and they paid no attention to any of that. And it looks like a terrible design just because they didn't make any kind of decisions on grain in their design. Well, I think the old saying, um, I hear a lot, the devil's in the details. And I always say it differently. I say God is in the details because the devil's in the details insinuates that the details can cause problems that I would like to insinuate that the details can take something from ordinary to extraordinary. And it's, it's all the small things. And the, the one that I point out all the time, if you've ever experienced an Eames lounge chair, the real, the real McCoy, the, I think Steelcase has the license to make those, if I'm not mistaken. If you ever sit in one of those and run your hands over it and under take in the craftsmanship of an Eames lounge and then sit in a knockoff, it is a completely different experience. The depth of the, of the tufting for the upholstery, the edges of the bent wood, the there's a rubber, I think it's a, I think there's a rubber interface between the bent wood and the leg frame. And there's a flex to that rubber that is very particular. And if you get it wrong, it ruins the chair. <laughs> and, and some of them don't even have that rubber interface. They're just a fastener that bolts through. And that's a, it's all a completely different interface. And you could argue, you know, is one better than the other? Sure. One's better or one's more desirable, but they're, bottom line is they're different and that same level of difference can can advance it maybe even another step further if you wanted to again do a design project and you said well i'm going to start off with an eames eames lounge and i'm going to take it and i'm going to redo how the bottom pan attaches to the back uh, I don't know what you call the back i guess it might be called a pan as well but i, I don't think it is i think we seat pan and uh, back shell maybe and change change how it attaches and it may not be the angle it may not be anything about the profile it just may be physically how one thing attaches to another you could potentially improve that eames design their purists will say that you can't but but there are opportunities to do that or if there's pattern that you can put in the bent wood or if there's a different way that the upholstery wraps around instead of stop short or there's a an edge detail that you could put on it that would be different that maybe doesn't show the plies. Maybe it covers it up and and dresses it up just a little bit with a a different species of wood that's contrasting. I think those are the types of things when I look at uh, I'll, I'll go back and another influential <laughs> teacher that I had, Daniel Rodriguez. He was a Harvard grad. Um, he he told me early on, I think it was my first year of design school. He said, don't borrow an idea from somebody, steal it. And, you know, when you first hear that, you're like, well, what the hell's the difference? He said, well, if you borrow it, you're just sort of keeping it the same. If you steal it, you're going to change it enough that people can't identify it anymore. <laughs> so and, and it's like, yeah. And he's like, and make it yours, you know, put your identity on somebody else's idea. And all of a sudden it's something new. And it's a, it is, it's a unique way to look at it. But I think in the design world, there are very few you, totally unique ideas anymore, right? Everything is an iteration, like you mentioned earlier. It's an iteration. 
you hope that it's an improvement, but it's a change. Maybe it's in function. Maybe it's in the aesthetics uh, that that'll get. The hope is that you advance whatever it is that you're doing to the next layer of of beauty, complexity, elegance, however you want to say it. Yeah, the design is is not something that you can do in a vacuum. There has to be some kind of input. Uh, just like you said, the blank slate or blank page syndrome that you're sitting at the blank page. What do I do? If you have no direction, you have no idea. One, I mean, when we're talking about gathering inspiration, right? There's, there's the, hey, I want to build one of these, and maybe I want to make this my own. But the, the uh, impetus for whatever it is that you're doing, maybe, maybe it is something new. Hey, I've got a, a chair or a table that I need to perform in a different way than what I've seen before. Uh, I, I need to build a coffee table that can rotate so that uh, whoever's using it can set something on it and move it to the next person. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, and so there may not be something out there that's the exact basis of what you're trying to do. Then I think when I'm looking at gathering inspiration, um, I think there's a few different categories that you that I gather it from. One is the function side of things. How would somebody make a rotating top on a on a table? And I think we've all seen the cool videos where the guy rotates the tabletop and it gets bigger, right? And then yeah. it shrinks in. And then there's there's other ones that maybe it's a lazy Susan with a hole in the middle. And, and when you turn it, something else happens. Or, or maybe it's just very simply somebody used uh, a certain kind of dowel as a roller and the way that that interfaced between the bottom and the and the rotating part was unique and you can borrow that detail but the form of the thing is very different so that's the function side of thing but then on the aesthetic side of things i think that's where the world completely opens up to me anyway when i'm putting together uh, we have inspiration boards at the office i usually keep uh, a couple um how, how would i say it? in progress inspiration boards at all times i i swap things out and the things that are on there are not related to architecture and buildings that I'm designing. They might be automotive. They might be my motorcycles that I think are cool. It might be furniture. It might be products that I think are cool because aesthetically, either there's a color, there's a, a contrast, there's a texture, there's a pattern to something that I find interesting. And, you know, I've, I've gotten hung up several times in my life on houndstooth patterns. There's like a billion different houndstooth patterns out there and they're all really inspiring and and how you can look at the person who set up a loom and made that pattern, you know, is it is it a, a, a interlaced pattern? Is it is it very particular? Is it big? Is it small? Whatever it is. And then how can I apply that aesthetic inspiration? Maybe it's the red paint on a Ducati motorcycle and how that interfaces with a satin chrome that's on the frame or that's on um, the the piston or the sorry the cylinders on the engine and those types of aesthetic contrast can inspire a myriad of things. You could be looking at a motorcycle, but designing the lobby of a hotel, and some of those interactions between shiny and dull, or colorful and you know saturated and unsaturated, light and dark, uh, cold and warm. You know the, all all of those types of things can as we gather those things, I think it's important for us as makers to understand that a car can influence a house, that uh, a piece of furniture can inspire flatware. And 
don't don't sell yourself short in terms of if I'm building a table, I just need to look at tables and how people have done it. And if I'm building something out of wood, I need to look at other things that have been made out of wood. I think sometimes if you you're doing a carpentry project, you can look way outside of carpentry. I've seen somebody recently, and I actually when I was in in Boston at the build space was the first time I saw it. There was a uh, Harvard um, graduate school, a design student there working on a five axis CNC making some furniture for an installation. And he was using this five axis CNC to carve logs, full logs. And he was putting a tufted uh, upholstery pattern on them. So like the buttons down in the diamond pattern, right? That you see in coffins and things of that nature. He was using this five axis CNC to create that pattern on a piece of wood. So you're sitting on a log, but it looks like your grandma's 1920s divan. And, and it was a really unique inspiration for a log piece of furniture was, you know, something that is very padded and tufted and from the upholstery world. Yeah. So to, to play off your, uh, uh, inspiration boards where there's things on there that have nothing to do with architecture. Um, I think that is a really good, uh, way to go about creating something truly unique. Um, I've, I, I'm working with a client now and. This is a project that won't be made public uh, just because of the nature of what this project is. It's, it's an earn for a, a client. Um, and he asked me, asked me not to uh, publish it on my YouTube channel or anything like that, just because it's a personal thing. But uh, in designing this earn for this gentleman, uh, he told me stories about uh, how when he was a kid with his father, they wa walked on the beach and uh, there was some special moments on this beach. And so we tried to incorporate things into this project from the beach. And one, the thing, like if you look at uh, beach sand, it's it's kind of has uh, kind of a warm brown gray to it, or at least the beach sand that I've been exposed to. I know there's different types of sand around the world, but in general, on the on the West Coast, the beach sand has kind of a warm gray to it, but there's all kinds of little flecks of broken seashells and things in it. So one of the woods we selected is a, a wormy maple or ambrosia maple because the ambrosia maple is kind of that same beach sand color. And then from the worms and things that have eaten into the wood to create those colors, that kind of looks like that the debris in the sand, those broken shells in the sand. And so uh, just by having this conversation with uh, with my client about uh, this special moment that they shared, I was able to construct a whole design uh, based on that um, on that story. So the story kind of dictated the, the design and things that were pulled in for inspiration had nothing to do with woodworking or furniture. It just had everything to do with telling the story. I I always go back and and what what you just shared reminded me of this, Brian. The the old uh, Reese's peanut butter cups advertisements from the eighties. You put your peanut butter in my chocolate. <laughs> No, you put your chocolate in my peanut butter or whatever it was. And it was, it was that the, the whole commercial series was about, you know, somebody tripping and dropping their chocolate into peanut butter and creating this new thing that was a peanut butter cup. And, oh, wow, we have this unique taste because this accident happened. And I think there are so many things in the design world that can be those accidental, like, holy cow, how, how did we wind up here? And it's our job 
as designers to be that alchemist, right? Trying to put things together to get a result out that nobody expected to get. And I'll, I'll share this story. I don't, I don't think I've ever shared it on the podcast, but um, the guy who, who did uh, two eye surgeries for me went to school with one of the guys who invented LASIK surgery. And he invented LASIK surgery because he was doing his residency in Boston and somebody from the MIT laser lab called and said, I just pointed a laser at my eye and burned my eye. And he said, okay, bring him into the ER. And they brought him into the ER and he was examining this guy's eyeball and like, you know, tell me about these lasers. What are you doing with them? He's like, well, you know, we can melt certain things with them and we can do other things. And he's like, this is interesting. And as he's looking at this guy's eyeball, he's like, how well can you control these lasers? like oh we can you know control them down to whatever amount of of detail and all of a sudden he's like well i wonder if i could reshape people's corneas with these things and those two guys invented lasik surgery as we know it today oh, and it wow. was you know this chocolate in peanut butter situation where you had some guy who was technical and understood a lot about lasers, but nothing about eyeballs. And you had another guy that knew everything about eyeballs and nothing about lasers. And all of a sudden they have a, a an accidental meeting, so to speak. And all, you know, it changes the way that, that uh, we view um, nearsightedness and our ability to actually correct something that was uncorrectable before. I say that because I think the same is true in other forms of design. So that's that's product design, right? They designed a product that fixes eyeballs. That's pretty cool. Um, but but when you get outside of your comfort zone and you start playing with things, whatever they are, if it's you know I don't I'm not a plumber, I don't know much about plumbing. But every once in a while, I go into the plumbing aisle at Home Depot and I just start pulling I start pulling stuff off the shelf. And putting it together in the aisle, like, what does this do? How can I do this? Will this connect to that? Yeah, okay, cool. And all of a sudden you walk away with some inspiring idea about how maybe a, a plumbing or pipe threading machine might help you do the next thing, right? There's always that knee jerk. Everybody uses the, the pipe flange and, and rigid pipe to make legs on tables and things like that, which we've all seen that done. But there's tons, there, there's thousands of other things you can do from a design perspective with some of those fittings and and some of those ideas. And maybe you want to thread something that's not plumbing pipe, but it's something else that you're doing. Those those types of, I'll call it the, the chocolate and peanut butter things that maybe you're not exposed to normally. If you expose yourself to those things, I think that's a wonderful way of gathering inspiration. One of my favorite designs I've done was because I cut... Uh, a leg too short. I uh, I made this oval table and it has three tiers to it. And it has four legs, one on each endpoint of the oval. And I cut three of the legs. And for some reason, my brain spaced off and I went off to work on something else. And during that time, I moved the stop on the table saw uh, to make a different cut. So now it's it's shorter than what it was. And I realized I didn't cut that fourth leg. And so I was like, oh, I just need to cut that fourth leg. And so I threw it on the table saw, forgetting that I had moved the stop from earlier. And I made that cut to cut that leg to length. And now it's too short. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I just, I'm like, I'm going to have to go to the store and buy some more wood. But then as I was sitting there playing around with the design, like, you know what, it's going to look pretty damn cool with with one leg that's shorter than the other that hits that 
lower shelf of the table. So it's like holding up the lower shelf of the table, and then the top is cantilevering with three legs. Bob Ross would call that a happy accident. Happy accident, yeah. Bob Ross, that guy, I, he knew what he was doing. He did, and and I think there's there's definitely a lot of value in understanding that we all make mistakes. We all do things that we didn't intend to do, but all of those mistakes are an opportunity either, number one, to learn a lesson and get better at what you're doing, or number two, it's an opportunity to design around whatever just happened. And, you know, we, I'm sure you've been stuck before where you had three things that all had grain that kind of looked similar, but then a fourth one that didn't. Well, okay. Maybe that's the contrast in the piece. Maybe that's mm -hmm. the one different thing that I can make stand out or feature in some way, or somehow connect in a different manner that, that makes it make sense that, that enhances the piece rather than detracts from the piece. I think that's a whole skill set that when you when you hang around people that are in their 70s that are still doing design work and building things, they are very good at those, at featuring things that other people would see as a problem. And they figure out a really unique way. And it's it's simply because of of the number of reps that they've put in over the years and how that sparked all their creativity. You know, do I throw this in the trash because I've got this one thing that isn't working right? Or do I outsmart it and make it a reason to make this thing just a little bit cooler than it is right now? And I think that's that's a huge design talent when you can put a constraint aside. You can turn a constraint into a positive force in the design. Yeah. As you were talking, I was trying to rack my brain of a good example of that, but uh, that's happened to me so many times that I think it's just now like, it's just like an everyday thing. So I don't really, really, uh, I can't really think of a good example, but it's just, it's a, it's nonstop constant of like nothing ever works the way you want it to work. Uh, if it does, it's an amazing thing that, oh, it worked the first time, but like, there's so many things that just come out of like, oh, that didn't work out very well, but I don't want to throw it away. Cause I, I have all this time invested in it. So I have to turn it into something else. And then it just kind of grows from there. One of my buddies told me one time, it's amazing. The harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and it's a it's a really good way to to look at it. You know, you see a lot of people and you're like, oh wow, they're really blessed with this talent or that talent. And you know, in the design world, uh, I have people that I look up to, you know, to to an immeasurable amount. Like, wow, this this guy came out of the womb, or this this lady came out of the womb, an incredible designer. And I've talked to a number of those people that I've idolized in my life. I, you know, I've just been lucky enough to wind up in the same room as them or to just pick up the phone and call them. It's amazing sometimes who answers the phone when you call somebody's office uh, or how quickly you can get to that person and, and, you know, set aside some time or make an appointment to talk to them about stuff. There's not a single person that I've ever talked to that I, you know, I'll start off and think, man, this, this person was just born with amazing talent. And you get into the discussion and you realize that they've worked their ass off to get that level of talent. It's not free. It didn't come automatically. They worked for every bit of it. And when, when we talk about gathering inspiration, I think when you look at the result of a design, it is directly proportional to the amount of time and effort that's put into it. The first scribble that goes down on the page is not the end of the design process. That's the beginning of the design process. And I think a lot of people really believe that good designers take their first idea and their first idea is gold and that whatever they put down on the page, it's that's 
that's good. That's gonna be that's gonna be it. When Alvaralto drew his uh, his knee tables, I think is what they call them. You know the little uh, Danish birch, beautiful bent wood tables. That that's the first thing that came out of his hand. No, that came after twenty prototypes. It came after probably a year's worth of working on it to refine it and make it this beautiful, refined, minimalistic thing. And when, again, when we're talking about inspiration, sometimes inspiration comes over a long period of time. And sometimes that inspiration comes from the first iteration that you do and you step back and you, you have to become your own critic and you have to be a harsh critic. If you're not your own worst critic, you've got a problem. You're never going to get good at what you're doing. You have to be a, a, a harsh critic of your own work. Sometimes you have to seek out other people's advice too, because there are people who we get too close. We, we become myopic. But if you can either through a drawing or through a prototype or, or whatever of your, you know, the first iteration of your design, if you can step back and honestly look at it, criticize it, take your own criticism, bite your lower lip and say, okay, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to change it. And I'm going to make this detail cooler and then build that and step back again and say, how can I make this another step better? That's where you're going to wind up. I think with those super refined, really well-designed projects is it comes through hard work and iteration. And again, I'm saying it as you can gather inspiration from your first effort and your second effort and your third effort. And sometimes that's not necessarily let's throw these prototypes away. Maybe those prototypes are good enough to sell or they're good enough to make some money on however, however that's happening, but you're learning and you're improving. And the next one you do is better. I know Brian, I've heard you tell stories about making things and then the next version of it you make is, you know, that much better of it. And, and I think that's how, that's how we get really good at our craft. Yeah. I think, um, uh, not rushing the prod process, not rushing the process and really paying attention to what's happening during the process and paying attention to the end result and stepping back and analyzing the end result. Uh, so to kind of give an example of that, um, this last winter, I built a table I called the portal table. Um, and if, if you go to my website and use the search box portal table, it should come up, but it has this segmented ring with this disc that looks like copper, but it's not actually copper. It is a piece of steel that I chemically treated to look like copper. And I had a vision in my head of what I wanted it to look like. And, uh, when the first time I applied the chemical, it didn't really look good at all. And so I, I sanded it and buffed it all off and started over again. I just kept paying attention to like how heavy I put the chemical down, what that would look like, and then what type of brush I would use. If I use like a sponge, like a sea sponge, and I dabbed it on there, it created a different texture versus using a paintbrush to paint it on there versus using a spray bottle to spray it on there. Um, so each, each iteration, I just kept paying attention to what it looked like and like, okay, so next time I need to go a little heavier and then I'm going to use uh, a paper towel to dab it on there because I like the texture of that. And eventually I got to a point to where I was like, okay, it's almost there. And uh, I thought, okay, here's, here's the point where I'm going to screw it up or I'm going to walk away from it. So I got some acid because there was a spot that I didn't really like. And so I touched the acid too. And as soon as I touched the acid too, I instant regret like, okay, this is, that's not what I, <laughs> that's not what I wanted. It totally looks terrible. 
but I knew that if I used this other chemical, it would kind of turn mix with the acid and turn the steel green just from past experience. And so then I put that on there and then it just like looked better than what I envisioned. So uh, just going through that whole process of just really paying attention and just taking note of what was happening throughout the process was allowed me to now, I'm pretty sure I can recreate that design again, uh, just just from my uh, uh, attention to detail of paying attention to what was happening. My observation, I guess, is a better word to say that. Yeah. And al along those lines, Brian, I think one thing that another place we can gather inspiration and as you were talking about that that ring table, I I can remember you know seeing you've done several things uh, that are segmented that have different pattern to them and different and they're all they're all different from one another, but they're they're all of the same of the same family. Maybe they're cousins. I I don't know how to say it, but but I go back to uh, the things that I use when I, when I'm struggling with something or when I'm critiquing my own work and I go back to the gestalt principles, which I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. I think there's seven gestalt principles and it's, it's a, uh, you know, line point and, and motion and contrast and scale and, and those types of things. But we can always go back to the fundamentals and go back to those design language type of, of teachings where you're looking at, you know, one is a monolith, two is a pair, three is hierarchy. Those rules have saved my bacon so many times where I'm struggling with something. Why doesn't this look good? Why is this out of scale? Why is this, why does it look clunky? Whatever, whatever the issue is. And I, I go back to those things. What's the rhythm? You know, what's, what's the pattern? How does this break down is there you know I, I always look at things and you can look at, at things that aren't column related in in regards to the the roman traditional columns there's a base there's a column and there's a capital and it it breaks down in a certain scale it doesn't have to be exact but that's how things work if you're looking at a at a table there's a leg there's an apron there's a top and those ha things need to have a certain proportion to look right and if they're out of proportion Something is going to be wrong, and you you have to identify those things. But you, I always look at them like if you're a basketball player, you have to learn to dribble, you have to learn to pass, and you have to learn to shoot. That's the three fundamental things. And if you can't do one of those things, you can't play basketball. <laughs> and and in design, we have those too, and that that is those gestalt principles and and some of those underlying very simple things. Scale and proportion, you know, are, are, uh, uh, oh my gosh, um, the golden section. There we go. Ooh, took yeah. took a second, but but the golden section. I, I always think of the conch, but uh, the golden section. There's a there's a reason why we've used that over and over again because fundamentally those proportions are very nice. Does that mean you have to use them all the time? No, but there's probably a good relation back to those things in you know, looking at illustrations and, and renderings and uh, drawings that we do, the, uh, the nine square grid, that is an unbeatable force. If you, if you want your image to look good, you go back to that nine square grid and you ask yourself, how is this breaking up? Where is the subject? How is it in relation to the horizon or the sky? And how is it uh, related to, to the foreground? There's, there's another one, foreground, middle ground, background. That is such a simple thing to remember. And if your artwork has that, if your furniture piece has that, where does the eye rest? 
you know, there has to be a foreground, there has to be a middle ground, and there has to be a background. There has to be somewhere for the eye to rest. There has to be somewhere for the eye to attract to. And anytime I'm looking for design inspiration, that's one of the one of the common things I go back to is those year one design school fundamentals. Yeah, I'm looking up something because you sparked an idea in me when you're talking about the golden ratio. Um, I'm looking at some, I did a whole uh, talk on this last year about how the golden ratio is BS, but we won't get into that <laughs> in, in this thing. And surprisingly, the talk went over pretty well, but I wanted to find a quote. Uh, oh, crap. I don't know how to pronounce his name. M. Massimo, Massimo Viginelli. Uh, he was, a, uh, I believe, a uh, Italian designer, and he said, don't be governed by the grid, govern the grid. So yes. that was kind of the thesis of my talk that, yes, the golden ratio looks awesome, but if you're trying to snap everything to each little piece of the golden ratio, it's not always ever going to fit because you have all these uh, things that you might need a drawer to be a certain function. But if you make all your drawers the golden ratio, they're going to have a drawer that's teeny tiny that's not going to be functionable. So I, I, I think that's just worth pointing out that, uh, um, as you, as you go through life, you, that you need to, through your experiences, you need to just kind of train your design eye that, okay, I'm going to use the golden ratio to start my design, but then I'm going to trust my design eye, uh, to be able to modify that to fit the function that I need and it'll still look good. There, there was, uh, I, I do. I share this with people all the time. There, there are two pieces to design: making the rules and breaking the rules. And we all have to make rules. We have constraints. It's a table. Well, it's got to be tall enough that I can pull a chair up to it. That that's a rule. Okay, great. Can we break the rule? Yes. If I put bar stools around it, I need to make it taller. <laughs> and you know, so so there are always those things. And the the golden ratio. I I say that that is a tool. And you know, if you go through and look at Palladian windows or or some other um, Gothic arches, things like that, they, they don't fit that ratio. But if you're looking, if your design is inspired by something, it is very important to look at the proportions of what it is that you're trying to achieve. I mean, I, I go back to the onions on top of the Kremlin and some of those things, right? They, they don't fit any traditional design things, but there's something cool about them. Yeah. Um, uh, the Taj Mahal, very similar, you know, the, I, I can't remember what, what you call that pattern in, in some of the mis Middle Eastern architecture, but it's not a traditional Roman proportion. But if you're going for that, there, there is definitely a subtleness and a beauty and elegance to those types of things. But again, we can make those rules, but then we can break those rules. And I think when you break the rules, that's when all the interesting stuff happens. That's the yeah, the the floating the floating legs things that that we see out there that's completely different than a table that you've seen before. Although there, it's rooted somewhere in something that you've seen, and and maybe it takes your eye by surprise, and that's that's what makes it interesting. But I, I think absolutely making the rules and breaking the rules are two things that you have to do. Yeah. So uh, as you were talking, I made a couple of notes of a few things that I think uh, is important to touch on. Uh, you're talking about uh, by segmented rings being in a cousin or a family. And I think that's a really good way to develop new products and new things using some of the same style. So like that segmented ring, I've modified it. Uh, I've made it an oval and I put it around a speaker for a guitar amp. Mm -hmm. You actually 
Thank you for playing it for me on my YouTube channel. If you guys want to listen to Greg play some guitar, uh, you can search that up on my YouTube channel. Um, And then uh, I used it in a uh, gaming shelf, uh, made this huge big ring in a gaming shelf. And then I've put it in a desk and now a table. And so I, I've used this same concept to generate new pieces as, as I've gone. And each piece was well, with the exception of the um, portal table. I still own that. I haven't sold it yet. So if you want to, if anybody wants to buy that, <laughs> but um, uh, each one of those pieces was designed specifically for a client. And I was able to use my past design to pitch to the client to fit their specific need. So I think that's a really good way to, just pull in some inspiration to uh, continue your your journey in a specific style. I think that you, you've brought up an interesting point that as an artist, as a designer, um, you can have something that becomes your signature and there's nothing, nothing at all wrong with reusing that signature over and over and modifying how that signature becomes part of your artwork. And, you know, there's, uh, I think, uh, is it Matt Groening, the guy who created The Simpsons, if I remember right? right? He puts he puts his initials in the characters. Um, I think Homer's ear is an MG. Oh, and, interesting. I didn't, uh, I've never paid any attention to that. Yeah. But there's there's all kinds of things that, that he hides in his characters. And it's his signature. And, uh, you know, that's his actual signature but you can have a design motif that carries from piece to piece and you can have veins of design so um uh, some designers have different phases or different um i I can't remember what i'm I'm trying to think but different phases that they go through where they design things in this vein and then this vein and that vein and sometimes they come back and revisit those things and doing those and expanding on those ideas i think is something that creates a body of work, a portfolio of work that becomes very interesting over time. And you can relate as somebody um, taking in that, that content or, or, you know, if you're viewing it in a gallery situation where you can see that thread that goes through each piece, I think that makes for a very interesting, very interesting design portfolio. And those motifs are, are really cool. The the one that I would point out, if you ever walk into a Frank Lloyd Wright building, you can look for it. There will be a red tile in all of his buildings. And that was something that he started very early in his career. And even beyond his passing, the the buildings that he built have a red tile and that identifies it as a Frank Lloyd Wright. And it changed. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. Some of them are, I think, decorated. It's It's been a minute since I went down that rabbit hole and looked at all the different Frank Lloyd Wright tiles, but uh, I, I've probably shared this before on the program. My One of my former bosses uh, right out of school, Homer Williams, owned a Frank Lloyd Wright house. He owned the Bot House in Kansas City, which you can look up. Fascinating house. And it was built in, I think, 62, which was after Frank died. It was built by students from Taliesin. And uh, that was one of the things when you walked in the front door, you could look behind you and find the red tile. And it was just always such a cool thing. It's like, this makes it real. It's it's that Louis Vuitton tag, or, you know, I don't know what the big fashion is this at this point in time, but every every purse maker or every every fashion designer has their thing that they put in, their weird stitch. You know, some of them, I think, uh, 
have a red stitch or something they'll put under the edge of a lapel, things of that nature. Anyway, I think those those are really cool things to have in your work. And that starts to define an entire body of work instead of one piece. Yeah. And some of those things may not necessarily be visible to anybody that's looking at the piece. Um, going back to the green and green style with uh, Daryl Peart, um, when Daryl uh, started using a CNC to help his production along, all these CNC um, bits came in this little plastic tube. So now when he builds a piece of furniture, he takes that plastic tube and he drills a hole behind the mortise. So you, you cut out the mortise and then behind the mortise, he drills another hole the length of that plastic tube and he'll write a note of something that's going on in the world and roll it up and stick it and embed that plastic tube inside the piece of furniture and then put the joint together. So there's this tube with something written in it in his furniture. Well, that's fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a cool idea. I I think there's there's something interesting. Um, again, if if you're into fashion or whatever whatever you're into, as the person who has the jacket on or the pair of shoes on, um, I think I've I've seen. I can't remember who it is. I think there's a shoemaker that puts uh, like a an inspirational saying on the tongue of the shoe. So when you put that shoe on, you can see that every time you put the shoe on, uh, make somebody smile today. I don't know what you would write on some there. kind of fortune cookie type of thing. Yeah, very much, very much so. But when you put those shoes on, you see it every time. No one else sees that, but you, and, and there's something really cool about being that person. I could see as a furniture designer, a building designer, you know, if you're, I don't design offices anymore, but if you were designing somebody's office, putting something on, on the backside of the door that nobody else sees because, Hey, could you catch that door? Could you, could you push that door closed when you leave or whatever it is where that person gets to see it every time, uh, whether that's a pattern in the wood, or maybe it's a, again, some type of, of ornamentation that they get to see that nobody else does that somehow has a meaning for them. I think that's a really cool thing. I'll I'll go back to um, the door that I made for the Sutton house. So it's a house that I designed that, that sits on a lake and I built the pivot door. Uh, it was a series I did of like, felt like a thousand videos on my YouTube channel and court and steel. And, and it was very sculptural, really fun door to build, to design and build. But in that door, there's five P or sorry, there's, yeah, there's five pieces of glass and it's one for every member of the family and then one to look out of. So there's a sun and that has a piece of glass. And then there's four other pieces of glass kind of randomly around the door. And they're all at different heights because there, there was a mom, a dad, and two little kids, one older than the other. And so the, they represent those four members of the family. They're the only ones who, well, now everybody listening to this podcast knows, but it, at one point in time, they were the only ones who knew that. And it was just our little thing. That's, you know, the question was, well, why is there five pieces of glass? Well, there's a reason. Yeah, and that I think those things are awesome. Yeah, and that's like a snapshot in time because that piece of glass is down low as that child grew, right? So it 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 captured a, a moment. It's like a picture of design of that that was that family at that time. That's that's a really cool story. Which for sure. Inter interestingly enough, I think I built that door. Um, I I think I finished that door in either 2011 or 2012. So it's been in place for for a decade now. And uh, I got to see that door last week. I went and visited and it's Corten steel and we left it outside for 
three or four months to rust before we installed it so that it wouldn't just bleed everywhere. And the last time I saw it, it was still really kind of orangey still, which is kind of the first phase of the rust. It sits mm -hmm. under an overhang, so it doesn't get massive exposure. But I saw it here last week. And it's finally gotten to that velvety purple almost color, like a, a really smooth bronze color and just looked yeah. gorgeous. And I, you know, I hadn't seen it in several years. And I just, as I, as I walk through it, I was like, oh man, <laughs> this looks really good now. I, this is what I envisioned a decade ago when we were building it. So uh, really kind of cool to see that again. Yeah, that's, I think that's an important thing to take into consideration in your in your designs. Um, I had recently built a green and green style door. And uh, when I designed the door, um, I wanted it to be a little more contemporary, a little more modern than uh, the, the original design, like in the Gamble house where you have that uh, design with uh, the cloud lift and then the stained glass above it. Um, I didn't want to get into stained glass because that's a whole nother, another thing that would have been way more complicated for this particular project. But uh, in place of the stained glass, I picked out uh, some flame maple. So it has like all kinds of mm. really crazy patterns in the in the grain of the wood. And that's that's in place of the stained glass. And the door is in the back of my shop. I installed it in, in my shop and it faces a south facing wall and it's totally exposed to the weather there is zero protection it's gotten the full full front of the uh the weather over the last six months and i'm i'm really excited of how well it's held up with the colorado weather here mm -hmm. and then the coloring has really made that uh flame maple pop because it's inset inside cherry which got really really dark from the sun. And then below that are some um, walnut panels that have lightened up because of the sun. And so just the contrast and melding of all those colors, just like it looks way better than what I envisioned it when I designed it, just because of that, that I wanted that uh, maple to represent the glass, but now you can just really tell that, yeah, that was, that really does represent that glass. So just the patience of time has, has made that design worth it for sure. I, I think that's in, you know, we're, we're probably a little bit off topic here, but, but when you're designing things, I think that's one thing that you have to be acutely aware of is what is this thing going to do at, over time? None of us have a crystal ball, right? We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but, but not being surprised, I think is a big thing. And, you know, that, that informs your decision of how to make joints that informs your decision of the type of fasteners to use, the type of adhesives to use the type of materials to use and you know is this a wear surface is this an exposure surface is this the bottom side you know what what are we dealing with and a lot of times when you go through some of that analysis you know how how is this going to look in 10 years where is it at who's walking by it how many people are touching it are they setting things on it you know if you're if you've got all your drink bottles and they're going to go on there that's going to inform that your finish has got to be a little bit different. You can't put an oil on there or you'll be redoing the oil every month when there's a ring on there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's something that you're going to shoot a catalyzed clear on there, whether it's matte or glossy and, you know, on and on. I think, uh, again, when you're looking for those small decisions in a project, they seem small, but they make a big impact going through and analyzing what 
that piece may look like in 10 years is going to change the way you execute some of those things, uh, either to make it stronger or to make it last longer. Or if you want the effects of the weathering to change the piece over time, maybe you choose to not have a finish. And that's, that's something completely different. And I think those design decisions are as important as the form. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I have one last thing on my notes that uh, I think is worth mentioning in designing things and finding inspiration is not to take the easy road mm -mm. on things. I I just did a, uh, this is kind of a dumb example because it's not very intricate, but I, uh, I'm, I uh, bid a uh, restaurant to build some tables and I bid the tops at an inch thick because one, I wanted to make sure I didn't scare them off with price because anything, you know, the thicker the you go, the more, the more wood you, the more, the more you spend on wood, but also from a build ability standpoint, cause it's a whole bunch of tables and I wanted to be able to crank them out really fast um, and also easier to handle, easier to transport. Like the whole thing is just going to be easier if it's an inch thick. And then in the final meeting we had before closing the deal, the guy's like, I want the tabletops thicker. And I was like, damn it, but okay. And, uh, it looks way better. It just looks way better with that, that amount of mass on there. Yeah. It's, it's hard for us as human beings. None of us are looking to make our lives more complicated. They're already complicated enough. Mm -hmm. We have enough stress. We, <laughs> we have enough outside factors making things uncomfortable for us. The last thing we want to do is add another level of discomfort. But I've always found that the best things come out of the most discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like The worse the situation is, the better it's going to turn out. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. Taking, taking that step back and saying, this is the easy way. What's the hard way? Which way is going to come out better? You're at hundred percent right, Brian. Yeah. And, and uh, I don't want to give a specific examples just because I, I work as uh, part of my business is, is to be a consultant for, for other people that want to do what I do and want to learn from me. And whenever I sitting in a consulting call and I, pitch out an idea and they're like, oh, well, that's going to be really difficult to build. It's like, well, that's what's going to make it worth it. Right. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you're, you came to me to learn what I do. Like, if you want to learn what I do, you got to, you got to do it the hard way sometimes. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this one because I am a, a little bit of a German car nut. Anybody who's closed the door on a German car understands exactly what I'm talking about right now. And the quality of, of a, German car door closing. That is one of the most difficult things as a car designer. I'm not a car designer, but I know people who are. That's one of the most difficult and expensive things you can do at the factory is make a door that closes with that amount of precision and clickiness. I don't know how to describe it, but there's you can feel it when you close that door and every dollar they put into the tooling and, and the pieces and parts, the hinges, the latches, uh, the catches, everything that, that goes into making those doors close that way is hard, but it's worth every bit of effort because when you open the door, the, your, your first introduction to the car, when you open the door and you step in and you close it, you're like, I'm in the right car for me. This is this. It sold itself though. So. Yeah. There's, there's a, a wonderful pleasure in interacting things that are well-designed 
not just from a beauty standpoint, but from a function standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, this has been an awesome top topic to talk about. It's one that I'm very passionate about. I think um, when we look at our design work, when we look at our production work, it has to come, it has to be inspiring. It has to come from something that inspired you. And when you put all of that together, you wind up with something where uh, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, or, or maybe the other way around. Uh, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think that's what we're all after, chasing design and making things. And and uh, this was this was awesome to sit and talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of our better episodes. But uh, yeah, I think we should end it there. Do you want to uh, start uh, taking us out? Yeah. So I'm Greg Porter. You can catch me on my YouTube channel, Greg's Garage on YouTube and Greg's Garage KC on Instagram. And I'm Brian Benham and you can find all my socials in YouTube and my website at brianbenham.com. Uh, you're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast where you can find all the show notes and past episodes at themakersquest.com. Thanks for listening.